Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. Uh, today, our guest is producer, composer, and record label owner, Michael Lockwood. Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, Michael. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Doing great. Good. Uh, thank you for taking your time out for us. Um, I know you've been very busy lately. You've been you've digitally reissued the album from Lions and Ghosts, Velvet Kiss, Lick of Time. That's right, yeah. Um, you've released your score for As the Village Sleeps. I've done that as well, yes. And uh, your record label, Sparkle Plenty, has just released the album from Bird Streets. That's right. It's their, their second record, and that got released on Friday. Yeah, I, I checked that album out. It's, real, it's great. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, I could talk for a long time about John Broder and his songwriting and his lyrics and his melodies. I mean, he is... He's an undiscovered gem to many, but there is a good a good amount of people that know who he is. And if you look at the musicians that he plays with, you can see that he's a musician's musician and the album is chock full of great people. Yeah, I think I saw on Instagram that, you know, Jody Stevens from Big Stars on the album, um, Pat Sansone from Wilco. Right, yeah. Um, I believe Amy Mann plays bass on a song. I had Amy play bass. We have uh, Patrick Warren, who you might know, who's a string composer and keyboard player who's played with Amy and Michael and done uh, lots of soundtrack work with uh, T-Bone Burnett. He scored the strings for the songs that I produced on the record. And um, we have the, the lovely uh, Ed Harcourt playing piano from the UK. So we had a lot of different fun people on there. And of course, you're also on I, the album. I, I tried to mess it up as best I could. I got on there and made a big mess. And, yeah. <laughs> it, um, recently, well, I don't know, with, with the whole COVID break, I feel like it was recent, but maybe it was like four or five years ago. <laughs> I went to go see a performance of the Big Star's oh, third right, album. Right. Oh, I love that record. So, uh, you know, Jody and Pat were there. So... Um, definitely got like some big star vibes on, yeah, on this album is, as well. The, boy, I will say, I mean, the song that that finishes the record "Go Free" is the song that just Big Star never released. Really, to me, that's it's really got that vibe. Those guys really bring that. And you know, I think John and a lot of people we know, most of the people on the record, all were heavily influenced by Big Star. So it's kind of nice that it all has that that tone to it. Yeah, definitely. It's a really, it's a really easy listen. It's, um, you know, it's got some great melodies. I'm, I've great. been enjoying it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> so I, I also feel like there's a little bit of that big star element on that lions and lions and ghosts. Uh, I, I think so. Well. I think that's fair to say that it's, it's kind of funny that you bring it up because, uh, yesterday I did, um, a podcast, uh, Attica live and he made me do a top five records which i think is not fair to anybody on this planet to say tell me your top five because i don't know if that's possible right and uh, i had to sort of choose right. an avenue i mean i could have done 
like my favorites of like what crazy jazz records influenced me. You know, you can go like a million different ways. So I thought, well, I mean, I have to talk about the Beatles because if, if I hadn't heard the Beatles, I wouldn't do what I do at all. So I kind of went down that avenue. And now that we're even talking about it, I'm like, oh, I forgot to mention that. I forgot to mention that. But in the top five was the first big star record. And the reason I brought it up is that when Lines and Ghosts were playing in Southern California in the like mid to later 80s, um, we had a great following and we got great critical acclaim um, but we really couldn't do anything much outside California. It just never happened for us. But something that I kept seeing in reviews of Lions and Ghosts is there was always big star references. And I'd heard the name, but I'll be honest, in 1984, I hadn't heard big star, which I don't think was really uncommon because they made great records to a very small audience when they came out in the seventies. Right. And, um, after reading all these, I'm like, okay, I have to go investigate. But in 1984, there were no streaming services, clearly, right? You know, there was it, not, who's got a cassette of Big yeah. Star? Somebody must have a bootleg cassette of them or something. But I actually uh, went trolling through the record shops and I found, a, you know, an original copy of the first record, brought it home, and I've never stopped playing it. Because after I heard it, I thought, well, what a massive compliment for somebody to reference Big Star when they're talking about lions and ghosts. And um, I've said this a couple times recently, and I have to preface it before I, I say it because I don't want it to be taken the wrong way, but I felt like in some weird way, there's some parallels with lions and ghosts in that I think we made a great record. And I think more people might understand it now than they would have in 1986 or 87 when it came out. And that for me was a big star comparison in that they made these great records and they're timeless. They don't sound like they were recorded in 1973, 74 era. And um, I just, I feel like there's this connection or bond and I still listen to all those records, talked about them yesterday. I'm going to talk about them today. Um, it's, they're musician records and you know more and more when i meet people even my kids i have two 14 year old daughters i'm like listen to this song it's called 13 blah 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 you'll understand all of this you know but they don't really they don't get it now but i i see it seeping in when you turn people on to that kind of music and i i love that you know those records and i love that you went to the uh to the third uh anniversary show that was cool i'm sure yeah, I had a great time. Um, you know, Pat was there, Jody was there, like I said. So, you know, I felt like I was just like connecting all these dots as I was researching your background and your band and, um, you know, the stuff that you've worked on as well. Um, and as far as Lions and Ghosts, you know, you guys came out in the 80s, but I feel like you're not, you know, you're not a new wave band, you're not a hair metal band. And, you know, um, I got maybe because you have a song called Mary Goes Around and the replacements have a song called Mary Go Around. I, I kind of got some replacement sort of vibes. And they were another band that was kind of underappreciated in the 80s and then didn't really get their due until later. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. It's funny. You know, I, 
I remember the replacements records coming out. I remember really loving them. I remember all my friends did, but you're right. I don't think that they got their due. And Paul was an incredible songwriter. And I did read, you know, I, I have read reviews of Lines and Ghosts where there, that comparison has been drawn in there too. I still keep waiting for the replacements thing to really like, when is, when is somebody going to go and champion them? Because they were a big part of, you know, I like to use the term soundtrack of our lives. Like we have records that make up our whole journey on this planet. And I know the replacements were a big part of it for a lot of people. Think you were here too young for it, but um, you know, at that at that time, uh, I heard their music everywhere, and I don't now. And I'm trying to figure out: is it because of the way radio has become like a satellite thing, where there's a channel for the '80s, a channel for the '90s, and is that that one or two people are making a decision of what the '80s really sounded like? Because the '80s were wildly varied even in southern california right you brought up hair metal new wave we had post-punk we had punk um i mean there was kind of a singer-songwriter thing there were so many things happening all at once but if you and i go today and flip on an 80s radio station we're going to hear probably the same 13 or 14 songs on rotation every hour that might be a Duran Duran song. That might be, you know, there's these things that define that era, but there's actually mm-hmm. quite a lot of amazing music that was very different all the way through it. So I, I find that fascinating now. It's like the 80s channel should have the replacements. Be really nice if they had a Lions and Ghosts song on there too, you know, but, <laughs> but we, right. we didn't reach that audience. We, you know, we were very West Coast and... For some reason, we are also very Swedish. I haven't quite figured that one out yet, but. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've heard, um, you know, different artists who uh, all of a sudden got like a huge following in like a a different country. Like, um, you know, I I interviewed um, John Munson from from Semisonic, and he said that, uh, when um, Dan Wilson put out his solo record, like one of his songs like blew up in Greece <laughs> and like they asked him to play like an award show. It's it's so strange. I, I don't understand it. It's certain things connect in certain areas. Um, uh, I love Semisonic, by the way. They um, We spent a tour with them when I was playing with Amy Mann and they opened up and it was just when closing time had uh, come out. There was such a good... There's another... Great, great band and should be part of the bigger picture of the 90s, but I don't know because Stan's written so many hits and he's done he's done so so well for himself. But it's funny, he's got his big hit in Greece, and you know, we're seeing we're looking at numbers in places where the Bird Streets record's popular. Same thing, it's popping up in these countries in Europe, and you're like, okay, well, we're gonna take it. I'm happy about that actually quite a lot of listeners in the uk for john so that's i get that that makes sense to me that's that kind of record but Mm -hmm. it is it is popping up in europe in these little countries and um sometimes i look at the lions and ghost stuff um it was having a run in portugal Uh, all right i mean it's great says transcending languages 
Uh, yeah. Uh, well, music is a universal language for sure. So um, after Lions and Ghosts, you know, you put out one one more record, right? After that, the Wild Garden album. We did. That's right. We did that second record that came out in '89, I think. And then um, after that, kind of petered out, I guess. It's a good way to put it. It was like a state of confusion for me personally. It was hard to figure out what to do after that. Um, I had made quite a friendship with the drummer from Lions and Ghosts. And he and I were working on, um, we were writing and recording a bunch of instrumental music because we wanted to actually work into uh, some sort of soundtrack arena and we, we put together this project called The Love Administration. And I just dug out a cassette of all the different tracks on it. And it couldn't be more 1988, 1989. It's, it's, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I didn't know what to do after Lions and Ghosts because I had invested my entire beingness into being in that band. And that was like having three other wives and suddenly were separated and... It just, it wasn't working anymore. We second guessed ourselves to death. Our second record sounds more like the replacements than say our first record, which sounds pretty English. And, you know, we had, we worked with Tony Visconti and, and uh, Peter Walsh on the first record. The second record, we'd work with um, Tom Panunzio from New York and Tony Berg from out here in LA. So two different sounding records and it just wasn't connecting for people besides our shows and it wasn't connecting for us. So I, I, I went in and out of a bunch of power pop bands for a couple years in LA. And then I um, decided I needed to hone my craft and I took a gig playing downstairs at the coconut teaser in the early nineties. And I just stood in the middle of the room with acoustic guitar and played songs to people. And half those songs were probably off the, uh, the uh, big star catalog. Right. I just would sit there and play and try to become a better singer, a better writer. And towards the end of that, I had a conversation with Jason Faulkner. Do you know, do you know Jason? Yeah. From, from like the Grays and Jellyfish. Right. Exactly. Right? So Jason and I were good friends. In fact, there was a second that Jason was going to be in Lions and Ghosts. It was a, you know, it was like the end of the eighties. Jason and I were friends and I think he, he had maybe done the three o'clock thing, but hadn't moved over yet. So while he was in the Grays with John and Buddy and Dan, uh, Jason said to me, he said, you know, John and I were talking and he's going to continue to work with Amy Mann as a producer and a writer, but he doesn't want to go on the road with her anymore. And we both thought that you might be the perfect foil for her on the road. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And I didn't know Amy's solo record that had come out the first one. I just knew her catalog from Till Tuesday. So Jason and I went to the Roxy and we watched Amy and she played with John. And I think she played with the guitar player from XTC, Dave Gregory, I think his name is, yeah. So we saw this great show and I told Jason, I said, it's amazing that you guys, you know, thought about me in this. I, I'm super interested. So I, I don't know, a few days later, um, Amy Mann and John Bryan and Jack Joseph Puig showed up at a guitar shop I was working at on Sunset Boulevard. 
And uh, we went for a long walk around the neighborhood. And then Amy said, hey, do you want to come to the studio tonight? So I came in the studio and I played on a long shot off of I'm a Stupid with her and John. And we stayed up all night chatting. And from that moment on, I spent about 10 years working with her, producing and writing. And we worked on a bunch of movies and we can get into all that. But that sort of changed. I had this weird period of figuring out what to do. And that was the perfect thing for me. That's what I love to be as somebody's right-hand man or somebody's wall to bounce things off of. And also to get my hands dirty and do some of the dirty work, like putting a band together and rehearsing the band or... Unfortunately, sometimes firing somebody in the band. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of, it's way too much for an artist to do. And maybe it's not even appropriate that a manager does that. It seems like, you know, you if you can get a contained little unit of a band and sort of manage it, it can become a really powerful machine with the right artist. So... That's what was happening with Amy. And I'm forever thankful and really lucky to have started that because it set me down a path of playing with a bunch of great people. So my life really changed after that. Yeah. And um, I feel like Amy's popularity kind of spiked when, you know, she was working with John and with yourself. I, I was lucky. I hit, I really was there at a really amazing time. John had done so much groundwork because he'd made such great records with Amy and they'd written great songs together. And I, I feel like a lot of the people in Amy's bands, we all sort of listen to the same music or grew up listening to the same music. And we all sort of, our output is geared towards that kind of sound, which works, works really well with Amy. So, I mean, as John was departing, I happened to come in at a time when, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson was around and he was in the studio and he was listening to all the stuff we were recording. And at the same time, I was working with Fiona Apple and he was dating Fiona Apple at the same time. So I saw him everywhere. So I was, it's one of those like right place, right time kind of things, you know, he would come, he'd come up to me and he'd say, you're going to be very happy with me. You're going to be very happy. And I never knew what that <laughs> meant. I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And, um, well, I, you know, I later found out that not only did he use one of the songs that I wrote in his movie, but you know, he, he also, I mean, for me, Magnolia and, and maybe, other people might feel this way, sort of had a bit of the graduate thing where the music was part of the storytelling and was really integral to the movie. And I felt like The Graduate was the first movie I ever saw like that. I know there's been many others, but I think Paul really, he, I mean, Magnolia is such, that's such a journey, that movie, you know? So, and the music is really yeah. a part of that journey too. So, I mean, that was happening. And um, we got, you know, during that period, we did a, a song for the movie Enough, the Michael Apted movie with um, uh, Jennifer Lopez is in it. Did you ever see that movie? I don't think I'm familiar with that it one. Was, it, that was an interesting project too. It was all at once. It was all kinds of sort of movie and TV stuff with Amy I, you know, Magnolia certainly opened that door and she was, you know, John was doing the, the score, Amy was doing all the songs for it. 
uh, Amy was married to Michael Penn, who had worked with Paul and and had done sound. It's just this big intermingle of of this weird musical misfit family. And uh, we, Amy and I, she had written a song for. Uh, I think she had to specifically write it for the movie Enough, and I think it was going to be like an in credits kind of song. So she wrote a little bit of the song and um, we started recording it and we started creating this vibe for it. And then we went and met with Michael at the studio and he sort of showed us where the scene was. And so then I asked him if he could send over the footage. So he sent over the footage and we actually remixed and recut the song and he wanted to stretch it out. So there's whole sections of it that are instrumental of going through this house. And it's all part of that song with like a collage of instrumentation. So it was a fascinating project. And one I've not gotten to do like that sense is to take a pop song, rip it apart and make it a mini soundtrack within that movie. That was a great project. And we, yeah, that's very cool. We, you know, after that, I think, well, we did songs for I Am Sam with um, uh, Amy and Michael. So there was a whole run of soundtrack stuff with Amy. That was, I mean, really nice. But yeah, thank you. I, I hit I hit a really great time period to work with Amy. And I mean, her record before last, she got a Grammy for. I mean, she is, she's incredible. What a great songwriter. I'm really happy we're still friends. And I love that she'll come play bass on the Bird Street stuff. And I, she's played on some other songs that weren't on that record. And also, um, I had Michael Penn come and sing with John on another new song that we've done. So we have a bunch of new stuff coming. Yeah, I'm, I've, uh, I've seen Amy live. I've been to her, uh, to her Christmas show at Largo. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. So I... When I see, you know, you were working on Magnolia and you were working with Fiona and Amy and John, I was like, oh, you probably spent a lot of nights at Largo and Fairfax. I, I, spent a, I spent a fair amount, not as much as them. But, you know, before uh, the Largo thing, there was a club in not quite Santa Monica, not quite West L.A. It was called the Alligator Lounge. And that's where John started his night and... I had just started playing with Amy, so John would invite us both up to play with him at this Alligator Lounge place, and he did the same thing. He would have Eve from the Eels come up, and it was just this little, once again, little family of people, and he had them get up and do stuff with him. And then he eventually moved that to Largo, and that became, God, that became like everybody's life. The Greys were always playing there. There was, John would have, everybody and their mother get up and play with him or some nights it was just him always entertaining always great and now they've they've moved to the cornet right on mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. is that la cienega over there yeah and yeah. before the pandemic either a year ago or 10 years ago like you it's really hard to judge <laughs> that those two years really wreaked havoc on everyone's lives i went with a friend to see john play and I hadn't seen John play in a long time. I had seen him. I moved back to Los Angeles from Nashville uh, seven years ago. And I went out to dinner with John and we hung out. And we talked and we went back to the studio and noodled around on guitars and talked about gear. 
endlessly. And then uh, I went and saw him play at uh, the Cornet Largo, and it was great. Really different kind of thing, though, uh, just because it's like a proper theater, and you're sitting in a seat, you know, watching somebody up on stage. Whereas Largo, you almost felt like you were the, the one at Fairfax. You almost felt like you were on stage with John and everybody. You were just right there with them, you know. Yeah, yeah, I've been to both. I've seen John probably like ten times. Yeah, Ace. Thoroughly entertaining, John. And did you um, yeah. have you listened to the? Um, you know, he re-released "Meaningless," his record that he did. It just came out on vinyl. Bought it the day it came out. No, I bought it the day it came out. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got a copy of it on CD that I got him to sign. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I've, I had it on CD for a long time. I was super happy, and the vinyl sounds incredible. Yeah. That cheap trick cover at the end. Oh, come on. It's so good. Um, okay, yeah, speaking yeah. of John and the Greys, have you seen the video for Jason's song on that? Um, I don't think okay. so. Okay. Like, I've listened to the yeah, album. Yeah, you have to look up the video. I forgot. I'm going to Google it really quick. I'm trying to think of what this... Do you remember what uh, the first single... Uh, is it Very Best Years? Is that the first song on the Grays record? 1994. So 93 and 94. And Rochambeau. That was the record, right? Okay. So Very Best Years was just... Yeah, Very Best Years is the yeah, first song. That's right. So you got to go look because I'm in the video. Okay. Very cool. I haven't looked... Long time. I need to go look for it. My friend and I were both there because we were friends with everyone. So we're like, okay, let's go. It was down in Lo it was down in Long Beach actually. Oh, cool. I'm sure Long Beach is much different than it was in '94. <laughs> uh, I haven't been in ages. I used to always go there to buy antiques because there were such great antique stores. I'm sure there's still some of those. They're definitely changing things. Um, so back to Magnolia. I heard that the song. I read that the song uh, Wise Up was originally written for Jerry Maguire. Oh, that's right. I think that it was. And Well, I know that Amy, and, Amy had talked to me, and I think originally they wanted to use her song from I'm With Stupid, uh, You Can Make a Killing. That was the original thought for that. And if you watch Jerry Maguire, there's a scene where it is a faux version of that song. So there is, somebody did like a little acoustic electric thing to make it sound like that song. That's what I remember about that. But then you're, I believe you're right. I think she ended up writing Wise Up for it. Now it's, it's not in the movie, right? It's, it's not in Jerry Maguire, Wise no. Up, is it? No, okay. Yeah, because I remember uh, I didn't play on the studio version of it. And I think I was working with Fiona. And I was in New York with Fiona working on something and Amy ended up doing this live Yahoo film to broadcast. And it was, and I think Michael Garrison was playing piano and it was like this crazy day, but that was the first time I'd ever heard wise up was that day. And I need to scour the internet because there was some great people playing that day. And it was a one-time thing, show up, no rehearsal play. Wow. Yeah, what a beautiful song. Yeah, it's great. 
I mean, that whole soundtrack, like Magnolia is one of my favorite soundtracks. It's a, it's a great soundtrack. Do you have that vinyl now that we're, we're I on? I do not have that vinyl. Hard to, it's super hard to find, right? I, I missed the fact that it got reissued with the, it was the score and the, uh, the soundtrack in one. And I, I remember one night, might've been during the pandemic, you know, like late night looking for stuff. And I just happened to Google that. And I saw that it had, it had come out. So I dug around and I found uh, a copy of it, but I think it's a very small run, but it's great. It's great packaging. Great vinyl. I'm probably going to look it up after this. Good man. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> um, so speaking of John, did, um, I see that you also worked on the I Heart Huckabee soundtrack with him. I did. Yeah. Yeah. He, I also love that soundtrack. That's such a great soundtrack, right? Um, funny, yeah. John was working in every studio in LA. I, I kid you not. Every sort of great home studio. I went to a party at my friend's house in Silver Lake. Who was in the home studio while we were at the party? It was John. And John was working on that soundtrack at the time. So he's like, come on, come on, come on, come on in here. So he had me play guitar on it. And then, I don't know, a month or two later, I went to another friend of mine's house who has a home studio. And John was in the, in that studio, but that was like in Hollywood somewhere. And so he had me play slide on something that night. He, it was, I mean, he is a mad scientist. You know that. He, he's, yeah. John is from another planet. And, and God bless yeah. because he makes such great music. But um, I didn't know anything about the, the movie. I just knew that he was working on these tracks and then he had me come play with him. And I didn't know anything about it until after it came out. And I went, oh my gosh, that's that thing we were working on. So he's worked on great stuff. I've just uh, recently downloaded some newer things that he's worked on, a French film and some other things. So I'm going to have to have an afternoon of listening to some stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of... I think after Ladybird, I think I've kind of lost track of his career, but he's always creating. Yeah, I um, I heard that soundtrack, which I loved very much. And that's about the time that I went and had dinner with him. And then there was a French film or perhaps a TV show, I can't remember, that came out after. And that's one of the, I, I downloaded that and one other thing to hear what he's up to. I think he did um, a lot of, or he did definitely do the last two Mac Miller records. Um, you know, he's, and those are great. Those, I mean, obviously, uh, Mac Miller passed away tragically, right. but yeah, um, I know. Oh, that, <clears throat> I didn't know that John had worked on those, so that's what I'm also doing today. So you're looking up Magnolia vinyl, and I'm going to go listen to some Mac Miller. Yeah, I mean, it. You can definitely feel uh, John's presence on those albums. I don't know that you could never. I mean, he's such a right. It's like, oh yeah, that's John. And it doesn't yeah. matter if he's playing harp, harmonica, uh, ukulele. It sounds like John. It sounds like him because it's going to be like all of those instruments on one track. Of, of course it is. That's right. In harmony. Yeah. In ways you never expected. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, you know, at the top of the show, you said that you were a big Beatles fan and I Am Sam is a soundtrack that is all Beatles covers. Correct. That is correct. That was 
super fun project to work on. Amy asked me to produce it and um, her and Michael sang it. And um, I mean, it's hard. Doing a Beatles cover, I think is impossible. It's really hard. I mean, you know, I remember, obviously it, it, I've, I've devoured all the Beatle records over and over again. And I, when Susie and the Banshees did a cover of Dear Prudence, I enjoyed it because it was very Susie and the Banshees. And I remember hearing Aerosmith, remember when the Sgt. Pepper thing with the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton happened, right? They, that, that movie. Mm -hmm. So I listened to all those covers and it's just, it's impossible to even come close to equaling the, you know, the way those songs were recorded. And, and also all of the us have listened to them forever. They're ingrained in our brain. And so then to think outside that box is really hard. So when we did uh, I'm Sam, we were rec uh, recording uh, Lost in Space at the same time. It was the record after Bastard Number no. 2 and Magnolia. And we were in this, well, maybe I was in the mindset of after listening to all of the songs that Amy had written, they, they seemed isolated and they seemed distant. And I just started crafting this sound of more, maybe, you know, it wasn't meant to be literal, but they were sort of songs that had space, but some things were very small in those things. So in that mindset, when we started doing uh, two of us, I kept it really small. Like the drums are actually like two ping pong paddles on a leg. It was tiny. And I played six string bass because I knew that, that Harrison had played six string bass. So that it was just, it was mostly just Amy and I, I think Michael played acoustic and then they sang and we just kept it really tiny and small because I didn't, I didn't even really want to listen to the Beatles version of that, you know, because I didn't really know what to do with that other than to continue down the path we were. So that's why we ended up with that version of that. And then we also, Amy and I did a version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And that version came out in Europe because they did some extra tracks over there. And that was kind of the same thing. It was obviously more psychedelic and, I actually remember we did put the record on. We referenced it while we were making it. But all, both the songs sound like they were created while we were making Lost in Space because they were. And um, that I thought that was a really cool collection. I love the Wallflower song. I can't remember which, can't remember which song they did, but I loved their version of that. It was, it's great. That's a movie that I haven't watched since it came out. So. I have a lot of work to do after I get off the podcast. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've been working kind of on, like on collaborations um, on soundtracks for, you know, a good part of your career. So, uh, but as the village sleeps is your first solo school, that's right, solo yeah. composition for soundtrack. Uh, strange timing. Cause that's my, that's my pandemic, my COVID story too, you know? Yeah, I think we all sort of have them because it it turned most people's lives upside down. Uh, 
old friend of mine, Terry Spears, uh, makes uh, independent small films, and he's a one-man show. He writes the movie, he directs the movie, he produces the movie, and then he does the soundtrack. So maybe he's the John Carpenter of his time. You know, he did, he does everything, and he made um, two or three films, I think, and he and I had reconnected. I had been gone for a while. I lived in England for a while and I moved to Nashville for a while and I came back to LA. I was going through a really contentious divorce. My life was already upside down. And then, then suddenly we have this new thing called COVID. And right as COVID was announced, I got really sick. I got COVID. I just didn't know it was COVID. And, um, and then suddenly wow. my things in my family changed. My father passed away. Like there was all the series of events. And then we have the pandemic. And at some point, Terry called me and he said, I'm working on this film. Um, most of it is done. I think you should do the score for my movie. And so we talked about the movie and what it was. And I think what he said it was and what it became might have been two different things in that it really turned into a psychological thriller and less a horror movie. And at first, I really thought it was a horror movie. So he sent me some footage. He gave me no guidelines. <laughs> he didn't give me any direction to start with. And from the beginning of it, it was really organic and contained. And so was life at the same time. So I recorded that at my home studio almost always at two or three or four in the morning. I worked all night by myself in the studio and I felt super isolated. The film was a, about a group of people that were very isolated and I wanted to make the score reflect that, but I wanted it to be opposite of what it was. It could have easily been very organic and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that was all electronic, something that was reminiscent of Giorgio Moroder or Tangerine Dream or John Carpenter. And I, I'm a massive fan of all that music. Um, I'm one of those people that, I, often enjoy listening to soundtracks as pieces of work. And I know it's it's not that common, but it, maybe it is for musos or, you know, there is a group of people that that's their thing. It's it's modern classical music in some respect, right? Some of these soundtracks listen to. So I started down a path and I yeah. just never recovered. I just would spend all night creating moods and it was... It was funny. I scored the film uh, from start to finish in that direction. I never jumped around. So I took the journey with the film. I didn't even watch the film all the way through. I actually took the beginning of the film, started working on it. It morphed into the next bit. That morphed into this. And I created themes as I went. I have no training, sadly, in you know, scoring. But I'm a huge fan of, of stories and movies, and I feel like every little song is a soundtrack in some way anyway. 
So if you just expand that song for the length of a movie, that was my vision, that there would be reoccurring themes, that that person would have a theme, that that situation would have a theme. So that's how I built the soundtrack. And I spent, I don't know, I, I might have spent a couple months off and on because things were changing, new scenes would come to me as they were editing them and stuff. So I just put it together and I did it knowing that I, I gave away all the rights to the soundtrack. I wrote it for them and gave it to them and they paid me for that. And then when um, I started the label Sparkle Plenty and we started releasing singles for Bird Streets and we started releasing the Lines and Ghost stuff, my friend called me and he said, you know what? I'm giving you all the rights back to the soundtrack. Are you interested in, in releasing it? I said, I completely am. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. And um, so he gave it back to me. So I ripped it apart and I remixed it and I remastered it. And I changed some things that we had left out of the film because there were rhythmic elements that I loved that didn't work with the film, but as a piece of music on its own, it worked much better. So I, I put all those sort of things back in and I added in some, some dialogue because I love that. It's like, it's a scrapbook of the movie and the movie they, you know, they fought with that movie trying to get it out and go to different distributors. And then during, you know, because the pandemic and everything was so upside down somehow, and unbeknownst to me and them, suddenly it became a viral hit. You know, next thing he knows, there's two and a half million views on just uh, YouTube. -y. So it's turned into this little thing for him. So it was good timing to put out the soundtrack and I, I'm super happy that that got out there. I would love that to be a gateway for other people discovering what I'm maybe able to do in that genre. Um, because, you know, it's funny, you point out some of the stuff that I've worked on. You know, a year ago, if you asked me if I'd ever worked on a movie, I probably would have said no. You know, I, I don't, I didn't view it like that. Right. right. So now, like, oh, my God, I worked on a bunch of movies. So, so I'm very happy that the soundtrack is out and it's, it's gaining a little bit of interest and it. A soundtrack is a hard sell for sure. But I'm happy that the little baby is out there for everyone to listen to. And it, I'm happy we got it out right before Halloween. I wish it was a, a bit earlier, but it came out a few days before Halloween, which was fitting, I thought. Yeah, I, I gave it a listen on like my home home theater speakers, and I really enjoyed it. And I think it's maybe like the second to last song. Like there's, it just kind of ends on like a really low bass note and almost kind of, I didn't even have the subwoofer on, kind of felt like it was shaking me. And it was, it was a really cool well, feeling. As long as it was disturbing in some way to you, it makes me very happy. Yeah, I, I definitely I, uh, enjoyed it as, um, as a piece of just music. You know, it's, it's thank a you. Yeah, really I, fun I, record. You know, the, thank you. At the end of it, I included one song. There's actually a few songs in the movie. I, I have this project called France, Francis Devout and the New Spiritualists. And it's myself and another young guy, Grant Nobleman. And Grant... I've known him for a few years. I met him because uh, his manager was looking for somebody to work with him to help him sort of 
develop his sound and and more realize himself i think it is and so he and i became friends and um we end up forming a side project where we would do sort of i don't want to say new wave but maybe it's new wave with an nu it's um you know it's it's more electronic it's more tongue-in-cheek um a lot of the imagery is spirit photography and sort of that old old world thinking of Ouija boards and going to a medium. And that's the sort of thing that, that surrounds it. So he and I did, I think there's three songs or four songs in the movie that we had done. And at the end of the soundtrack, I included the song called No Promises, which is kind of a Bowie-esque, maybe cat people sort of nod, you know, and uh, we're working on new music too, but I really wanted wanted to get a little Francis Devout out there for people. And I also want people to get to know who Grant Nobleman is because he writes incredibly great songs and probably he, there are times that he evokes Jeff Buckley and it scares me because he, mm. he's got that sort of voice. It is, it's gorgeous, his voice. And he, and it's so effortless for him to do. So I'm working with him and writing some songs with him and we're doing two things. We're working on a Grant Nobleman solo record and we're also still working on Francis Devout stuff. So I think we're going to have an EP coming out next year from Francis Devout, but I'm, I'm happy all that got to come out and, and happy that I got to include him on that. Yeah. Um, and that song definitely takes some of the themes from that soundtrack yeah. and, you know, kind of, you know, becomes like that end credit song. Yeah. It's what we do, right? <laughs> yeah. Earlier this year, I, I interviewed Craig Wedron. He used to be in Shutter to Think, and now he's been doing a lot of, um, you know, scores for TV shows and movies. And, you know, it's kind of similar where the first time he did a, a score, he was like, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just trying to make, mu you know, music for this movie. I just had a sampling keyboard and, you know, <laughs> I think, what was the quote? I, I knew... I knew how to make a rocket ship as well as I knew how to, you know, make a score for a movie. <laughs> that's a great but quote. That's his... almost might have to steal that. You know, you would think that I would have picked up the phone and called John for some pointers, called Michael Penn for some pointers, called Patrick Warren. Like all my friends have worked on stuff. And Patrick, uh, he was working on the Showtime show, um, uh, The Shy. And he was doing the score for that TV show. And he had me come over and play guitar a bunch of different times on stuff. And um, he started explaining the process to me. And I was like, well, it's so complicated and so political, right? Roundtable meetings with all these different people, notes. And he had some guy there taking, like, you know, professional notes and, and making all these things. And I thought about that. And when I was working on the movie by myself, I thought, well, this is not like that at all. This is, you know, 2.30 in the morning. And if I'm scaring half the people in the house that were sleeping because I'm down there rummaging around trying to make, you know, insane noises that sort of capture the feeling that I got from watching what I was watching. So, I mean, maybe that... I, now, when when you talk to him and interviewed him about this, it seems like he has sort of built a knowledge as he's went right now. He's in a different place than he was when he did his first one. 
Right. And he said that, you know, with the success of like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and like Johnny Greenwood and, and, uh, Jeff, Jeff Barrow, like it's easier for him to get meetings because coming from, you know, a rock background isn't as strange as it was like in, in like the mid nineties. Um, you know, in the mid nineties, it was like Elfman and Mother's Baugh and then, you know, John, it's true. There were really only those two sort of rock guys weren't there. I mean, Danny Elfman, wow. Hi. That's just a massive career and always really interesting, great stuff. I love his scores. He reminds me a lot of Bernard Herrmann, who's one of my favorite um, film composers. Oh, he did all the Herrmann do. I'm not too familiar with him. Oh, he did. Vertigo. Oh, okay. He did like okay. That whole That's what that name. That's what. Well, I think that actually Bernard Herrmann did almost all of Hitchcock's film. Maybe like the earlier English stuff, no. And then um, I don't know that he did Family Plot, but I'm a massive Hitchcock guy. And uh, those are my favorite films. And he, anything that Bernard Herrmann worked on, he also did. Um, he might have done the day the earth stood still. I can't. I might be right on that. Might be wrong. But yeah, he's an incredible composer. Yeah. So this might be a good time to be getting into the the composing world because you coming from where, you know, from being in bands and stuff, it's not as I don't I don't want to say taboo, but it's not as peculiar as it would have been in like 1995. Yeah, that, that makes total sense because you you're absolutely right. There was a time where there would have been no, there's no meeting. Sorry, <laughs> it's not for you. Um, but true, Trent Reznor and Atticus are, I mean, what a great do. I listened to a soundtrack of theirs the other day. Uh, it might have been for the, um, the Facebook guy movie. Oh, Social Network. I the name of it. Yeah, was it Social Network? That they, mm-hmm. they did that score, right? Yeah. I listened to it the other day because I, I have a great home system, so I... Sometimes when I'm not working in the studio, I go listen to music elsewhere in another room. And, um, and th- that day I just, I sat that and I listened to that. And I also loved what they did on the last Halsey record. I thought, mm. I know that record wasn't as successful for her as her other stuff, but boy, I sure connected with that record. I listened to it over and over. My kids were almost annoyed with me <laughs> how often I was listening. I'm listening in the in the car, and they're like, "Yeah, that's a good song, but I like this other song by her." And I'm like, "Okay, okay. I, you don't like all the all the rubbing notes that Dad likes in in, in their yeah. music." <laughs> so uh, let's talk some Sparkle Plenty. Okay. So Sparkle Plenty. Go ahead. Um, so this, so you created this record label with your manager. Yep. And obviously these albums we've been talking about, you know, the Lions and Ghosts record, the the score for As the Village Street, yeah, the score for As the Village Sleeps, these are these are all albums that are coming out on, on your uh, label. Right, that's right. So uh, once again, life for me really changed during the pandemic and that is where Sparkle Plenty was born. So I was working on songs with, um, Bird Streets, but I was doing that all virtually. Um, pre-pandemic, I had just met John Broder and we 
played a show together. And then he said, I'd love to work on something with you. So we started a song and we kept having conversations and he lives in New York. So we were working remotely anyway. So when the pandemic came, not a lot like changed for that, but then I started working on the soundtrack and I got a message on Instagram from Jeff Keller. It's a Jeff Keller management. And he wrote me a nice little note. And we had met years ago when I was in Lions and Ghosts. And so he reminded me of that time and the people around. And we just, we wrote each other back and forth. And he said, hey, do you want to get on a Zoom call? Do you want to do a Zoom thing? And I'm like, okay, I don't know what a Zoom thing is, but let's do that. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's get on and do that. So once a week, he and I would get on Zoom. And we became friends during the pandemic talking once a week and we talk about music, music business uh, and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And then personal things that were happening, his family. And he was in Northern California and I was in Southern California. And we had quite a few of these Zoom sessions. At some point he said, you know, I think we should maybe work together. Maybe there's something that I can help you do. And I, I thought about it. It's like, I've never had a manager in my life. And boy, do I need one because I've made some colossal bad decisions and I've happened into some great decisions. Um, and it's a shame I didn't have a manager years ago to keep me focused and on the right path of growing my career because I had worked with so many great people and made such great music. And um, I just would get sidetracked on things. So Jeff, first off, he said, okay, well, I want to manage you and help you figure out like, what is the next step and how do we now think outside the box? Because the industry that we all know is, is gone. I mean, there's a tiny bit of it, but it's just like the cream of the crop up here. So I said, okay. And he sends me like a paragraph contract that basically says, you don't like it, you walk. I don't like it. I was like, okay, well, this is the best management deal I've ever seen in my life. So let's do that. So he did that. And then two weeks later, he comes back to me and he goes, okay, so I got you a record deal. I went, what? You mean at a label? He goes, yeah. He goes, I did this through Deco Entertainment and they're tied in with Warner Brothers and ADA. They have incredible distribution. And um, yeah, I got, I, I got you a deal. I said, what do we do with that? I was just thinking, what does he mean? Should I do a solo record? Like, I don't know if I want to do that. What does that all mean? And then that idea quickly morphed into starting a label so that we could help other people. I mean, that was the whole point of starting the label was, okay, well, we have great connections. We have great distribution. We have some wisdom on what not to do. So let's, um, let's help some people. So we talked about the Bird Streets project that I was on and I started sending him some of that music to listen to. And I had told him, you know, he was super familiar with Lions and Ghosts and he said, you know, what about reissuing those records? And like that was on the list. It wasn't, it was like sort of at the bottom of the list. It's a lot of work. You have to get the rights and you have to do a lot of things. And oddly at the same time, right before the pandemic, I had this odd opportunity to go work in the studio. And it was Rick Parker, the singer from Lions and Ghosts Studio in Hollywood. 
So we reconnected and we wrote a song and that was all pre-pandemic. So all these things were sort of bubbling during the pandemic. And it it took a little bit of time to sort it all out, what was going to happen and continue to work with John and everything. But we have slowly put in place all these different ideas and they're all starting to come out on this little label, Sparkle Plenty. And Deco has great resources. We have an amazing publicist, Wendy, who you were in contact with. She's amazing. And so for two months now, I've been having the good fortune of talking to people that love music and love things that I'd worked on and maybe even had the same sort of thought as you. It's like, wow, I've been listening to all these records for ages and you're the guy that was on a lot of that stuff. So I've gotten, it's been very therapeutic and it's been really helpful in looking at where I want to go. And we're talking to a bunch of young artists and we have a bunch of great ideas. And so I, I'm going to be really excited when next year rolls around and we can put out some new stuff and we have some new Bird Street stuff coming and John has some great ideas and we're talking about all these different things that we can do together. So it's uh, it's off to a good start. Um, the Bird Street's record's doing really well and it's it's catching some love on Spotify, which in this day and age, that's amazing. I love that. He's really... Like he's, he's on, he's featured on a lot of playlists, which is great. And every day, the number of listens is growing at a really good rate. And I'm, I'm hoping, see, John's another person, his music would work so well in a movie setting. So I'm hoping that we can go down that path with him as well. So that's Sparkle Plenty. It's a little tiny label. And we're, we're here to try to get people to be able to hear stuff they wouldn't normally hear. And I was happy that we could do that for Bird Streets. I'm happy that we could do that for the soundtrack for As Village Sleeps. And it's really nice to put the Lions and Ghost stuff out there so that it's on all the streaming platforms. Because it was kind of sad that, you know, I mean, everything is out. There's only a few, a handful of records that aren't really on the streaming platform. So it was nice to put that out. It's out with extra tracks. There's some dance tracks that were remixed in the 80s on there, some B-sides. I have a treasure trove of stuff. We're talking about maybe doing some more stuff next year for Lines and Ghosts, maybe putting out the second record. We'll, we'll see what happens. But um, that's I'm now uh, the record company guy, so I end up you know, on all social media for like two hours every morning doing that over coffee. And um, I'm getting behind in my music work because I'm so busy doing that stuff. Do you think we'll see a physical release of that uh, Lions and Ghosts record? Well, it's, it's possible. Um, the reason we didn't do it is because, well, in the last few years, it was still readily available as as a used record yeah. and and there were still CDs out there so it didn't didn't really make a lot of sense it was more it was geared towards the digital platform but it's funny that you bring that up because everybody does everybody wants to know if we're going to make new vinyl for that so that might be a cool double album release where we have even more extra tracks on that um I wouldn't mind that at all. I mean, I love 
a physical product. I really do. And I am st starting to see, uh, you know, since my kids are 14, it's why, uh, interesting watching their experience interacting with music because for them and for us now, it's all about this. This is how we right. find our music. We pick up our phone and you and I probably cast it to our home stereo or to our TV. And that's a lot. But I, I have uh, quite a few records. I still listen to records every day. And I see my kids looking at that and they like that experience. That experience never gets old for anybody. It may not be convenient, but I'm seeing, I'm noticing a, a sort of a resurgence in CDs, oddly. Because once again, even though it's not as great as looking at a record, but having a booklet, looking at artwork, looking at lyrics, you and I find it really fascinating to see who played on what, yep. who produced where it was recorded like that's part of the story of that record on the phone you got to dig deep to find out that information you usually have to google it to get that info it doesn't come attached to the music like it used to yeah. so but my kids are now more interested in that they they have a cd player they have some cds they have a record player they have some records uh one of my daughters is helping me uh bless her she's helping me and i do have to pay her uh is helping me catalog the vinyl collection and put it in discogs so that i have a record of everything so she's going through and seeing a bunch of records and like who's this or what's that or has a great giggle when she comes across the lines and ghost section in my records you know she looks and she goes oh my god that's you i'm like <laughs> i said this this is COVID. This is the pandemic. And I just don't want to lose it. I feel so comfortable with all of it now, you know? So um, I, I do think perhaps we'll see some physical product from Lions and Ghosts at some point. I actually did want to put the soundtrack on CD because that made some sense to me in a weird way. But we just really didn't have time to do that. So get it out digitally. We'll see what happens. Well, very cool. cool. Um, I'm excited to see what you have in store in 2023. Me too. And uh, I guess final question, is there a, is there a soundtrack or is there a movie where when you, when you watch it, you find it like especially invigorating as a musician where it just kind of inspires you to want to wow. pick up a guitar or a keyboard? That's a, you know what? That's a really great question. I wish you'd sent me that question in advance so I could come up with something really great to say. But um, <laughs> I watch a lot of movies. It's the way that I, that's my true entertainment. When I listen to music, I'm working. So when I listen to a record, I, my gears are turning. Why did they choose that instrument? Why that voicing? How did that work together? Like I'm cataloging. Or I'm saving up ideas to try out on things. That's the way my brain works. When I watch a movie, it's purely for entertainment. It's purely to shut down. Some people do drugs. Some people, you know, drink. There's all kinds of different ways to sort of let the day go. For me, letting the day go is by putting on a movie. And whether it's a mindless movie or a movie that uh, really gets you thinking, those are the ways that I let go. And as far as being invigorated by a movie that makes me want to play, 
it's funny because you know i used to sit on the couch and play guitar while i was watching movies all the time that was my practice time and and it's funny you end up playing to the to the thing um gosh i can't i i suppose i hate to always go back to hitchcock but i like so fascinated by the way he made movies and the choices that he made and the people he worked with it's i think the one movie that inspires me the most on every level is vertigo that's the one movie that i don't know it's the time period really invigorates me i love sort of that late 50s early 60s uh aesthetic visually whether it's architecture, whether it's furniture, that's like, I'm really glued to that. I don't know why that is. I mean, I was born in the 60s, but I resonate with the time period that's slightly before that. I don't know why, but that movie really does it for me. The soundtrack is amazing. And that, I, I have always wanted to, and I, maybe this is something I do in 2023, I've always wanted to do a record of a soundtrack, but do it, all of it through the eyes of a guitar player. So there's a, Vertigo is very theatrical and big, and it would be to me fascinating to try to interpret that through a guitar. And I don't know, is that like weird electronic stuff with the surf guitar or whatever? There's, I keep having these ideas of doing something like that. So, Maybe that's something in 2023, but to answer your question, Vertigo is like the big inspiration. Very cool. And if you end up doing that record, let me know and we'll have you back on. Okay, thanks. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And it was nice to talk about some movies and movie music. And thank you for talking about all the other bits and pieces of my my career and um, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you. I'm, it was uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. It was so much fun researching and connecting all these different projects together. And, you know, um, I would say, um, for a good period of my life, maybe five years, I was at Largo at least like once a month and knowing that you were wow. kind of part of that, um, you know, I, I think I was early days. I would say I was early yeah. days of that. And, you know, I was on the road a lot. So I spent a chunk, like 15 years of my life, not being in LA. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad you enjoyed that experience. I know it resonated for a lot of people and still does. Yeah. But, I mean, John really created something super magical, you know, and it wasn't just John, but I, I feel like John might've been the ignition to that, you know? Um, bringing all those people in and it's Flanagan's club and it's, and I mean, it's, it's a cool scene. You're making me miss it now. So where can listeners find, well, let's say, let's start with uh, sparkle plenty. Okay. So, um, we have all the social sparkle plenty, you know, at sparkle plenty records on Insta. There's a Facebook page. There's a Twitter account for that and um there's also a website and if you go to uh, deco entertainment's website that's our um, sister company they're the ones that distribute everything for us 
There's pages on their site as well for uh, Sparkle Plenty, for Lions and Ghosts, for myself, for Bird Streets. There's websites for Bird Streets. There's websites for uh, Lions and Ghosts, socials for everybody and everything. Uh, I'm on Insta at Michael Lockwood, the musician. Um, and all those things sort of, t you know, we're posting quite a lot so you can see what new releases are coming or if there's a new video out. I think the socials are the best place to find all of us. And all of the music is streaming on every major platform there is, whether it's Apple, Spotify, high res on Tidal, high res on Kobuz. Um, I'm a big fan of high res music, you know, high definition uh, files to listen to. Um, and Bird Streets will also be available on double vinyl. Uh, it's coming out on marble blue vinyl. And I don't have a release date because we got a pushback. It's so it's so many records are being made now that it's really hard to get all that stuff out there. But that's that's coming. There'll be black vinyl and there'll be double marbled. Uh, that's at running at forty five, which is really nice for audiophile people. And uh, oh, nice. I think is that everything? Yeah, there's the socials, websites. Um, all those things are there. Sparkle Plenty Records, Michael Lockwood, the musician, Bird Streets. I think everybody's represented. As a Village Sleeps is. I think there's a Facebook page for it, but there is not a website for it. But if you look at my socials, you can see all the places that you can find it and stream it. Yeah, and if there's anything missing, I'll put that in the show notes. That's nice. I like that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Um, I'll. I'll let Wendy know when this uh, episode's coming out. Okay. Thank should, be, uh, should be before the end of the month. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. It was great meeting you too. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.